0: any of the six you want to zero in on. Oh, yes.
1: Vincent Price. He is my all-time favorite. Well, I don't know. if, if When I wake up tomorrow, it might be Boris Karloff, but for tonight it's going to be Vincent Price. Um, he, of course, did uh, several roles in many radio programs, but he also was the saint on radio, and I think he did a just a dynamite job on that. So could, could we talk about him for a little bit?
0: Sure, we can um, talk about Uh, Vincent Price I I led into the article by Setting up a Fictitious scene where Vincent Price's parents would be sitting Maybe on cloud nine Wondering Here we gave this person Everything Culture Trips abroad And Ivy League education We encouraged him with his legitimate stage career We applauded his reputation as a gourmet and an art critic And what is his claim to fame? Scaring people and that can be a little misleading because as we all know, Vincent Price was much more than a, a boogeyman. Uh, he was in so many different films. He was in historical dramas and he was in comedies. He was in some of the classic mysteries like Laura and some of the costume dramas. Son of Sinbad, he was absolutely hilarious in some movies like Champagne for Caesar and Curtain Call at Cactus Creek, and he was primarily known as a versatile actor until probably the the House of Wax, and then he was in The Fly, and then he was in the Roger Corman movies, in the 60s devoted to adaptations of Edgar Allan Poe and then, of course, as the abominable uh, Dr. Fibes. But he also had a, a career on radio. He had one of those smooth, sophisticated voices, and that's why he could be sarcastic on the saint, or he could be literary, um, or occasionally he could be uh, threatening. And the wisecracks were sometimes interspersed with, let's get down to business and solve this case.
1: If if you were doing a personality profile about him, what are the three personality characteristics that you would attribute to him?
0: Suave and... Melissa and versatile. He had a, a wonderful voice that could be lyrical, sometimes teasing, and sometimes threatening. And when he tells the stories of Three Skeleton Key or Bloodbath, He's a very believable and credible narrator, even when some of the events that are going on are pretty hazardous. And I, I mentioned that one of his more chilling performances was on suspense in Fugue in C minor, which is one of those great episodes that mingles music with the story. And because of his ability to be sinister and suave, I mentioned that it's somewhat ironic that he never had a chance to play Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, for few actors could play both gentleman and madman so credibly.
1: Was he a happy person?
0: Yes, I think much more so than than Peter Lorre. I talk about a little bit in the article on Peter Laurie how they were friends, and how he, near the end of Peter Laurie's uh, life, Vincent uh, delivered the, the eulogy, and he genuinely liked Peter Laurie, but he got to know Laurie well and found out that he was really an unhappy actor because of the typecasting that Laurie had been subjected to but when you look at the two actors Price was much more versatile and we could accept him in so many different roles as a a baron of of Arizona uh, as an architect uh, as a gourmet as an art connoisseur we could accept all those roles whereas it just didn't work for Peter Lorre. he had just been typecast so much as the the villain, the drunk, the madman, and that was pretty much the way he was typed uh, yep. through his career. I I think he was a little unhappy near the end of his life in the fact that his um, second wife had had passed away.
1: Now who are we talking about here, Peter Lorre or Vincent Price? Vincent
0: Price. When well, you're talking okay. you're asking about how happy he was or uh-huh. unhappy, and I think he was a little unhappy um, during some of his last years, plus the fact that his health was not good during his last years because of his... He had been a smoker um, for a number of years,
2: uh-huh.
0: and uh, I don't know if he was necessarily happy with some of his performances uh, at the end of his, his life uh, either, because when you hear his... His voice in Edward Scissorhand, uh, it's its not the same voice we remember of, of Vincent Price uh, that we remember. And that's just kind of a factor of age, uh, and that's thats the way it is with a, a number of, of actors uh-huh. as they age. They have to either become character actors or become fathers of the main characters um, or, or just leave show business completely if they can't find their niche or they're unhappy with their performances.
1: Yeah. I was very surprised when I read in your book that he graduated from Yale University.
0: Yes. And, uh, he was. And, I
1: mean, he had the persona of a, a gentleman and an Ivy Leaguer, but the movies and roles that he played didn't necessarily complement that. So I was surprised when I, when I saw that.
0: Yes, yeah, he was a sophisticated uh, individual, and of course, one of the things—if you read those six biographies of these fightmeisters, one mm-hmm. after the others—you'll see that all of them made some films somewhat near the end of their life that they wouldn't necessarily be be proud of. At least the Karloff and Price, Peter Laurie, and if you even consider Basil Rathbone, even though he's in a different section, they all made uh, some films um, that weren't necessarily top notch yeah. films, you know, like Dr. Goldfoot. And the girl bombs is not one that Vincent Price would put high on his resume.
1: (laughs) Probably not. And yet it's interesting. We talked with Sarah Karloff a while back, uh, a couple of months ago, about her dad. And her favorite movie was one of his last one's targets,
0: which you mentioned in the book here. And that was her favorite movie. I can can understand that because um, of the fact that it's a little bit of a role reversal in that he Karloff is somewhat the hero uh, one of his horror films is kind of playing in the background as he uh, eventually in essence disarms the, the man who's been who's been shooting uh, the various people so
1: mm-hmm.
0: and of course that was one of the last roles that uh, he was definitely on his feet uh, for that one yeah. some of the Final roles that he performed, and he had to perform from a from a wheelchair,
1: uh-huh.
0: and that's again a, a factor of, of age. Uh, that some uh, of those performers just have it in their blood, and they're they're going to they're going to go down with grease paint on their face.
1: Yeah, I'm I was so pleased that. Uh, she was pleased with one of his final works, and he was pleased and did such a magnificent job in the role of an aging actor who saved the, uh, the day, really. I mean, he, he came through and did the negotiations with the, uh, with the sniper, um, but it, it, it seemed to be a much different situation from what you described
0: with Baylor Lagoshi. and
1: would you talk for a second about his name? how it's mispronounced consistently?
0: That's the correct pronunciation, is Bela Lugosi. Uh, Very often people would pronounce it as Bela Lugosi um, on radio and in movies, and even today uh, it's mispronounced, but that's that's the correct pronunciation of his name. And very often if you hear him at the beginning of a program, when he's introducing himself, uh, he will definitely put the accent on Bela. Um, Sometimes the Lagoshi gets kind of slurred over. um, Instead of saying Lagoshi, he'll say Lagosi because his enunciation was not very uh, precise.
1: Ah, okay.
0: um, Which is one of the reasons that Karloff was a much more successful actor because Bela could never break away from that, and that's why he would always be be stereotyped into horror roles because uh, of his tongue uh, yeah that's somewhat the way that Ron Cheney Jr. was afflicted and not that he had a dialect but he had a, a very flat voice uh, and was not a very dynamic actor with a lot of range uh-huh. uh, unlike Price and Karloff uh, Karloff could be everything from a a sensitive a villain to a a threatening person uh, to even Fu Manchu.
1: And it was quite remarkable. And he was he was one. Uh, again, I I talked with Sarah Carloff a little bit about this, and I know you've picked it up in here as well. This is a wonderful section, by the way, with the Fightmeisters uh, talking about the um, the six actors who are. I mean, they 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 just epitomize the horror genre genre excuse me, Um, I'm thinking and reading and talking at the same time here. Sarah Karloff was talking about um, her dad, and I I mentioned that with just the move of an eyebrow, he was the kind of person who could change from sweet to sinister just by moving an eyebrow. And um, Baylor, however, stayed really stern and mean-looking all the time. There was nothing sweet about him.
0: That's right, and that's why I, I conclude at the end that despite the schlock that he sometimes performed in, like Plan 9 from Outer Space and some of the other films, he still remains the, the purest symbol of evil that Hollywood produced, and that's why I titled the article The Man of Our Dreams, that he's the figure in one form or another, that sometimes we wake up sweating in the middle of the night and with that, those hypnotic eyes and those claw-like hands and you mentioned that uh, about Karloff with being able to just by moving an eyebrow bring some malevolence into his role he could do that because he had a great radio voice he could do that also um, on the air how when he would be on Lights Out or one of the broadcasts that he would perform. He could, like The Wailing Wall and some of the other episodes, he could interrupt his narrative. And he could start a description and say, the moon cast a glimmer over the room. And and just by that pause, he could send shivers up and down our spine just by the way he would raise or lower his voice. So uh-huh. He, like, like Vincent Price, knew that a little goes a long way when you know how to use inflection.
1: Both of them had a lisp, and it seemed that they were both able to use that to their great advantage, but I'm not sure how.
0: Well, in, in some cases, it made, uh, it made it easier for the, the imitators of Boris Karloff. They could just, they could, the Ante pass the Ante pass. And just list it. And of course, Humphrey Bogart had a list too. So Mm -hmm. there were a number of actors uh, who did have a list, and it made it a little easier for the 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 imitators to to mimic them.
1: Much softer on the ears as well. Uh, It's it's interesting when you're talking about Boris Karloff saying something very sweet, and then just going into this one word that can change the entire timber of what's going on. I have children's stories narrated by him, and they're absolutely charming.
0: Yes, yes, and Vincent Price did a number of recordings as well, and Basil Rathbone did a number of recordings, and they're the kind of treasures that you sometimes will find at a flea market or perhaps at a thrift store. And uh, when you find them, um, they're, they're great treasures because these people knew the value of words. And I think for most of them, it came from the fact that they had some experience on, on the air. Uh-huh. the middle portion of the title of my book, w- even if they were screen stars, most of them had some experience on the air, so they knew how to use their voice.
1: And indeed they did. I, I have a challenge in front of me. We are barely into the 200s of your book. In terms of the pages, and we've got 570 some odd pages to cover. What would you like to do? Would you like to come back?
0: Well, or let me serve breakfast. Well, I think I, the next section is entitled uh, The Reliables. And I go over a few actors there, and then we haven't even gotten, really, to the, to the radio shows. Um, just let me mention in the, the next section the people who are covered. Uh, are you... Planning to play radio shows at any given time, like you have a scheduled uh, plan to play a program in the next 15 minutes or half hours?
2: Nope. We, we're on for another five or six more hours, so how long do you want to stay with us, Claire? We, we're open.
0: In the next section, I talk about some of those reliable actors, and I that's the way I group it, as the reliables: so Gabby Hayes, Frank Lovejoy, Alan Ladd, and then three very versatile actors, Jack Carson, J. Carol Nash, and William Bendix. And then Howard Duff and Basil Rathbone. And then I, I talk, there's another section in which I talk about the movies in general. Some of the fascinating rhythms, where I take the best original song from the early days right up into the 50s and show how at, in those years we really left the theater singing or humming the melodies. I talk about an overlooked series. People who watch Raymond Burr on television, on the Perry Mason show, may not even be aware that there was a, a series in the 1930s that Warner Brothers made of six Perry Mason films. And so I analyze each one of those. And then I analyzed the only film that Henry Morgan starred in and the only film that really gave Fred Allen a starring role it's in the bag for Fred Allen, and so this is New York with Henry Morgan. And then I talk about some of the, in another article about the great B pictures. And that finishes the section on the movies and the radio stars, and, or excuse me, the movies and the performing stars who made their reputation on the screen. And then I talk about the radio shows. 18 radio articles and then I talk about the collectibles Tom Mix premiums that people would look forward to collecting big little books those photo play editions and then there's a section on stories and there's an article on Burmache signs on the Johnson Smith novelty catalogs and there's even a, another section with some selected short subjects I look back at the movie theaters, and other related topics. So there's quite a bit that we haven't really touched on.
1: There's a lot we haven't touched on. And truly, um, Walden and I are going to be here until at least 5 o'clock this morning. So if you would like to stay with us for the entire time,
0: Uh, we would love to have you. If you can give me just uh, a a few-minute break um, to get a little glass of water and come back, uh, maybe the
2: two of you can talk. It won't take me very long. Maybe five minutes or sure. three minutes. Absolutely. In fact, I got a treat for everybody. So, and This should be a great piece on this low end. That way, uh, Patricia, she want to grab a glass of water. And Claire, you want to grab a glass of water. Tomorrow is the 71st anniversary where the eagle got loose in the <laughs> Fred Allen studio. In the Fred Allen studio? <laughs> We're going to be playing the entire show tomorrow night. But the five-minute clip... Five days later, Fred Allen wrote a great letter to John Wall, who was the head of NBC continuity department, and Dodge Butler, who was Stan Freberg's sidekick, read the letter out loud. So we're gonna re- we're gonna play Dodge Butler's reading of Fred Allen's explanation why the Eagle did his thing and why the Eagle left the residue in the studio. <laughs> So that's what we're going to feature for the next five minutes. Uh, (laughs) Everybody takes a break. Here we go.
3: This letter was written to John Royal, a vice president of the National Broadcasting Company. It became something of a collector's item around Radio City and Madison Avenue in 1940. It reports on the misbehavior of an eagle named Mr. Ramshaw while the bird was appearing as a guest on the Allen show in studio 8H at the RCA building. March 25, 1940. Dear Mr. Royal, I'm in receipt of your letter commenting on La Fair Eagle, as they are calling it around the Young and Rubicam office. I thought I had seen about everything in radio, but the eagle had a trick up his feathered colon that was new to me. I thought for a minute I was back on the bill with Lamont's cockatoos. An acolyte from your quarters brought news to us following the 9 o'clock broadcast that the Eagle was to be grounded at the midnight show. It was quite obvious that Mr. Ramshaw, as the Eagle is known around the Falcon Lounge at the Audubon Society rooms, resented your dictatorial order. When his cue came to fly and he was still bound to Captain Knight's wrist, Mr. Ramshaw, deprived by nature of the organs essential in the voicing of an audible complaint, called upon other anatomical regions to wreak upon us his rebuttal to your Martinet band. Toscanini, your houseman, has foisted some movements on studio audiences in 8H. The Boulevard Company has praised its movement over your network facilities. And when Radio City is being torn down to make way for another parking lot, the one movement that will be recalled will be the Eagles movement on Wednesday last. If you have never seen a ghost beret, you could have viewed one on Mr. Rockefeller's carpet during our Sterling performance. I know you wait with trepidation the announcement that I am going to interview Sable with his elephant some week. Yours for a wet broom in 8-H on Wednesday nights, Fred Allen. And there you go. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) That's all, Fred Allen. That's a memorable
1: episode. (laughs) Oh, my goodness, it was.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So tomorrow is the 71st birthday of that, and so we're going to play that right at 10.30 Eastern time for people to get a feel. What did the Eagle decide to do? All
1: right, <laughs> he decided to take a fly. And I guess he, he left a few deposits on some of the audience. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. OK, Um, uh, we're talking. Uh, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, can we move to the Reliable Center?
1: We can move to the Reliables. So I want good. to make sure people know who we're talking with. All right. um, we're talking with Claire Schultz, who is author. Uh, he was with us about a month ago, so this is not deja vu. He really is back. Uh, he was with us uh, to talk about Thibber McGee and Molly on the Air, which was his first book. He's got another book out, author of On the Screen, On the Air, On My Mind, published by Bear Manor Media. And when we get finished in a little bit, um, He's going to give us some information about what extras you can get by ordering the book directly through him. You can, of course, go to Bear Manor Media. You can do Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, Books a Million. It really is available all over the place. But I have to tell you, this is the, across my heart, honest-to-goodness truth, this is just plain fun to read. And it's huge. I mean, it is a huge book. It's kind of book like you can go to bed with and feel like you've accomplished something because it's in bite-sized pieces. It's in article length. I just
0: hope you're not a, a cult of one. I, I am not a cult, that, so.
1: I am not a cult of one. We have a really fun audience, a fun family with us on Saturday nights, and, and we're pretty much of like mind
0: on these things. So you've got a captive audience out there. All okay. right. In the Reliable section, I talk about some of these uh, actors who you could count on to be dependable, many of them in comic and serious roles. Gabby Hayes was, of course, the the king of the sidekicks. He was a sidekick for Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, Hopalong Cassidy, and a number of, of other cowboys. One of the ironies of, of his career is that he didn't turn 65 until 1950 when he made his very last motion picture, and yet we have this picture of him throughout virtually his entire career of being this old coot, this old crusty uh, curmudgeon, lovable curmudgeon, and yet he was in his 30s and 40s and 50s when he was performing through the, the heart of his career, And when he did retire in 1950, um, he made a number of live appearances, and he also had a a children's show um, on television. But he's one of those important people that when we look at the old Westerns, we say, where's the sidekick? And when he comes in, we would know that uh, we were in for some laughs to go along with the, the shooting and the riding. I talk uh, in the next article about uh, Frank Lovejoy, and I mention that he was of the same generation as some well-known actors like Tyrone Power and Robert Taylor and Errol Flynn, and yet they became major stars, and yet he did not. Um, but again, there have to be a number of role players. Um, Henry Fonda became a big star, and Ed Bagley did not. You know, Gary Cooper became a much bigger star than Dennis O'Keefe. You know, John Wayne became a legend on the screen, and Forrest Tucker, who very often was in similar type of movies, westerns, was a minor figure. But I do mention that Frank Lovejoy was more versatile, and that's why in the photographs that I picked to go along with the article, I have a photograph of him from one of his movies, standing next to Ronald Reagan in The Winning Team, a motion picture that was released in 1952. I have another photograph of him in his role on radio when he was performing on Mr. and Mrs. North. And then I have a copy of a playbill from 1960 when he was performing on Broadway in the Gore Vidal play The Best Man. So even though he wasn't a star of the first magnitude, he was more versatile than some of those other uh, performers. And I try to shine a spotlight on him, bring him out for a little bow from the wings because he's one of these people who tend to be uh, overlooked. I think his voice was very much the voice of the everyday Joe.
1: Walden and I have conversations about Frank Lovejoy's voice every once in a while. There is a quality about it, and I think it's his pronunciation of a couple of words that just make me wince sometimes. And others are just enamored with his voice and his scope of of roles that he
0: can play with it, or could play with it. I would tend to be in in Frank's corner on that, uh, but... (laughs)
1: Everybody's entitled to their own opinion.
0: Uh, I'm out here in the cold on that one. Walden's in your corner, too.
2: I I think the famous story, he wanted to break the New York accent really bad. That's why he was typecasting radio. And he had his poor wife, Joan Banks, work with him every night dinner. She didn't really want to do it, but she insisted in order to break out, he needed to break it. And so he was her responsibility to break that accent. Uh, for him, and that led me to the role we know today. Hello there, you're on the air, everybody.
4: Hello, Walden. Hello, Patricia. Hello, Mr. Schultz. Hi, Jim. Hi, nice to talk to you from Pittsburgh, California, and I called at this time because we knew that Frank Lovejoy would be coming up. (laughs) And one of my favorite radio shows is one I know you mentioned that you did write about in your book is Nightbeat. It was an excellent show. The show was well-written. The character of Randy Stone was portrayed very vividly and the stories were just hard hitting. They they touched human emotion. Could you talk a little bit about how he got the role and maybe a few comments on the character of Randy Stone and the stories?
0: I think that when I look at Nightbeat I think the primary asset of the show is that the right person, W-R-I-T-E, was played by the right person, R-I-G-H-T. The character of Randy Stone required an actor who could convey the honesty, sincerity, compassion, and vulnerability of an everyday fellow. And I really think nobody could do that, could really portray those traits more convincingly than Frank Lovejoy did because he played dependable kind of characters and that's, that's the kind of character that comes through in, in Randy Stone. Um, I'm not sure why exactly he got the role, but I think that went into it. I don't think they wanted somebody with a, a voice that people couldn't identify with because in so many of these stories, because it was a human interest, a human drama you have to have somebody that could empathize with these characters, whether they were running into a, a scared girl from Kansas um, or a punch-drunk ex-fighter or one of these sensitive folks who claims to have killed Vincent, and turns out to be Vincent Van Gogh. No matter what their circumstances or their mental capacity, Randy Stone becomes their champion. And because Frank Lovejoy comes across... As a very, he's one of us. That's why I think we identify
4: with him. Well, you know, <laughs> two of my favorite episodes were the premiere episode zero, was an absolute classic. It's a great race against time episode. And that poor girl that inadvertently made the mistake on her, on you know, writing the wrong number. I mean, you can you can feel she she was able to portray it, and and Randy Stone was able to sympathize with how the woman could have made
0: such a mistake and the tragic results that could have happened. Exactly, and William Conrad, I think, gives one of his best performances outside of Gunsmoke and some of the other episodes, uh, shows he was in, in The Football Player and the Syndicate. Right, and then the one about the Punch Drunk Fighter, the third show.
4: That's right. I mean, that was, and it was also, Lovejoy did some other things that were very good. Uh, There were a couple of suspenses that stand out. And I was going to mention before I forget it you were talking about Vincent Price earlier. One excellent suspense he was in was the June 1st, 1958 episode called Rave Notice where he plays an actor who fakes insanity after he murders one of his competitors. And it, Milton Berle had played it earlier. But Right, I was going to say, when you compare with Milton Berle, you know who's the better actor. Right. And another one that Frank, the uh, two suspenses I would recommend with Frank Lovejoy, one was, one, well, there were three, The Long Night from 1956. Where he plays a, a, a pilot, you know, it was about it was about an air, tra- an, an air and a race against time with air traffic control. And another one was one in 1959 called Death in Box 234, where he's a bank person that tries to steal money from the bank. And Ivy is a lovely name, which was also from 1959, about a father and an expectant mother in there. And Richard Beals gives another excellent performance. That's another great one with with. Uh, Frank Lovejoy.
0: Yes, there, there are a number of episodes on suspense. Um, I think some, so many people um, hail the, the Cary Grant um, episode um, of on a, country road, on a Country Road as being uh, one of the best, but I think uh, Frank and Joan do a great job on it as well.
4: Well, you know, the the thing is, too, is that he also, I heard an early, an old Gangbusters episode once, and it's not one that's in general circulation. One of my friends played it for me. It was one from 1942 called The Mad Dogs of Crime, about these two psychopathic brothers who go on a killing spree in New York. And two cops or mur- two policemen are murdered, or and a security guard, I think, or something like that. And Frank Lovejoy is one of the heavies. And it was so different hearing Frank Lovejoy as a mean heavy. You don't think of him in that type of role.
0: Yes, yeah. There's uh, a Pat Novak episode where he plays a, a a boxer who's a rather callous type, but not as vicious as the one you just mentioned. So
4: you've heard that Gangbusters, haven't you? Where he played uh, one of the Esquizito brothers. I mean, it was such a different oh, one. Oh, but, but he, and he also was in a TV series
0: called Meet McGraw. That's right, and I, I mentioned that in the article that that was one of the, the roles that, that he was in. And In fact, I mentioned it kind of as a lead-in to um, the Nightbeat article. I said he played dependable characters in the movies and a stalwart detective on television.
4: Why are so few of these television... We were were talking earlier about Joan Davis and I, Mary Joan, and you could say the same thing about some of the mystery shows like uh, Meet McGraw and others. Why are so few of those television shows syndicated today?
0: I think some of them um, may not be be available, um, and some of them uh, maybe were not Mm taped. Maybe they just did kinescopes of them. And maybe they're of such poor quality that they don't exist. Because you see, like, for
4: example, you see I Love Lucy fairly regularly, but you never, you rarely see, for example, I, Mary Jones syndicated. No. And, no. Rather, and I guess you could think of other series like that. But I just wanted to let you know that he was one of my favorite radio actors, and I'm so glad that you are writing, that you've written this book on all of these talented people. And it's one I'm looking forward to hopefully reading at some point.
0: Well, I hope you can stay with us till we get to the information that Patricia keeps promising. But we'll, <laughs> we'll get to eventually. If people to stay with it, <clears throat> yes. Well,
4: anyway, thank you, Mr. Schultz. Thank you, Walden. Thank you, Patricia. Thank
2: Thanks, you for Jim. going. We'll talk to you later, maybe. Sure thing. Thank you, Bye. Jim. And you can give us a call at 714-545-2071. It's Two oh seven
3: one.
0: All right. Hey. Um, okay. If we, the next uh, one on my list was a profile of Alan Ladd, and as I mentioned in the introduction, Alan is my middle name, and I was named after Alan Ladd. And I think it was because my father identified with kind of the quiet stoicism that uh, Alan Ladd played in a number of the roles. No one would ever accuse him really of of overplaying his part, and some people would accuse him of of underplaying. And I think that's one of the, the things that kind of nagged at him. The title of my article is A Prisoner of Doubt. He was not only sensitive about his height, but he was also sensitive about the fact that he didn't feel he was an accomplished actor. He would sometimes complain to friends, I, I can't act, uh, what's going to happen to me if I lose my job, and he was insecure about how much money he had in the bank, and even though he did have sufficient amount, he he always thought, well, there's going to come a time when I can't work, and what if I can't act? I won't be able to provide for my family, so he had these doubts going on in the, in the back of his mind, and yet he's an actor that became a, a major star uh, he had a great radio voice uh, as anybody who's listened to box 13 can attest to and he made a great screen pairing with Veronica Lake uh, their underplaying uh, played well off each other uh, in the roles that they were in and he made a number of notable pictures obviously This Gun for Hire, which was his breakthrough role, and Shane, Proud Rebel, uh, The Great Gatsby. A number of people are completely unaware. They think The Great Gatsby is a movie, they think of the Robert Redford version. They aren't aware back in 1949 that Alan Ladd was in that adaptation of Fitzgerald's novel. The three actors that I mentioned earlier in that overview that I somewhat grouped together not necessarily because of are equally talented or perhaps equally well known would be Jack Carson J. Carol Nash and William Bendix. I have a profile on each one of those, a separate article for each one and I identified Jack Carson the title of the article was Mr. Reliable he was perfectly credible in movies like Mildred Pierce and A Star is Born where he played a serious role and I have a photograph of him as the serious actor with Zachary Scott and Joan Crawford and Mildred Pierce at the beginning of the article and then halfway through the article I have a photograph of Jack Carson the comic actor with Ginger Rogers in The Groom War Spurs he also made several two guys films with Dennis Morgan two guys from Milwaukee and two guys from Texas in which he was very amusing. And Jake Carroll Nash played all sorts of character parts, could play all sorts of dialects, very often was cast as a villain or a gangster. And yet, we know him from Life with Luigi and Guessward Hold, a TV series, that he could be very amusing and perhaps the best known of the three was William Bendix. He could be serious, deadly serious in some movies like Detective Story and The Hairy Ape. He made a number of films with Alan Ladd like The Blue Dahlia and The Glass Key. Uh, Played a very important role in the movie Lifeboat. War movies like Wake Island and Guadalcanal Diary. And yet, when we think of William Bendix, probably the first name that pops up into our mind is Chester A. Riley, the, the lummox hero, if we can call him that, the lovable lug of the life of Riley, both on radio and on television. And I'm, when I think of these three actors, I think of a race that's somewhat almost extinct. Actors like Jack Carson and J. Carl Nash and William Bendix handled both comic roles and serious roles with ease for years, both in front of live audiences because they worked on the stage and in radio, and they handled those roles equally well in front of the movie cameras on the set. I don't know how many actors or actresses... um, have made their career of being so equally adept at being serious and comic and being believable in both personas. William Bendix
1: is one of the people in the industry who has always um, astounded me with his ability in so many different areas. But his role as Chester A. Riley, especially on television, begs the question of whether or not that buffoonery in any way hurt his chances
0: in other areas of acting. He was such a good buffoon. I think by that stage in um, his career, he died uh, seven years after the series ended on, on television. I think he was, he was pretty much resigned as you indicate there that he had it kind of fallen into everybody identifying him as Riley. And his, his movie career was virtually over by that time. So you probably are correct in that he had been typed um, as Riley. Although anybody who followed his career knew that he could perform in serious roles, uh, and and he did. Uh, on, for instance, on that Desilu Playhouse episode I mentioned in the article, in, he played a man who experienced a recurring dream, which placed him back in December 1941, trying to warn people about the coming attack of Pearl Harbor. And that episode was written by a man named... Rod Serling, and it sold CBS on the idea of a new series that would eventually become The Twilight Zone, so he could play some serious roles, and he did have guest shots on series like The Untouchables, so he still would play some heavies. But he was he was totally believable as the Lummox, and
3: <laughs>
0: the way he would say... Certain expressions and his unmitigated stubbornness and stupidity that would get him into problems. We could almost see when he was going to run up a an alley that would lead to his favorite catchphrase. What a revolting development this is!
2: He was so lovable.
0: Right, that's why I titled it the a lovable
2: lug. Yeah, he
1: really was. He was such a lovable character, even when he did something terrible. Uh, In one of the radio shows, he bought black market bread. And of course, I mean, at the time, that was, that was second cousin to first degree murder. That's right. And still he came out okay, because he was trying to do something good and didn't, didn't